Amen. Amen. Come on, give him another hand of praise. He is glorious. We serve an awesome God. Amen. Hallelujah, Jesus. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 25. Hallelujah, God. I don't think that there's a greater sound than grateful hearts overflowing to God Almighty. Amen. Hallelujah, Jesus. We worship your name in this place, God. Thank you for your presence, Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. If you are in the book of Acts, chapter 25, we'll begin reading in verse 1. When you got it, say so. It says now, when Festus had come to the province after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that, the, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove, while he, while he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar." Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for your spirit that is here now, God. And Lord, we just surrender our minds, our hearts. We pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear what you are saying to your church today. God, I pray that in these next few moments that you would use me, Lord God, to speak into the lives of my brothers and sisters, Lord God, to bring edification to your people and your body, Lord God, to charge us and challenge us to go forth in this great commission to walk and live out the gospel with you, God. Father, I thank you so much for your grace. We ask all these things in Jesus' good name, and someone said, Amen. you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. And so you'll notice that this morning you did not receive an outline when you walked in the door. And so we are still having connect, amen, hallelujah. And so you are going to take notes. And so I'm going to give you five questions that you are going to discuss in your connect group. So you should write those down now. And that way throughout the preaching you can answer them. You can, don't have to answer them through the preaching. But during the time that you are in the connect group, you can be able to discuss these things. The first question is this. It's real simple. We want to know, or I don't, I don't necessarily want to know, but your connect group leader will want to know, what did you get out of the message? That's question number one. What did you personally get out of this message? That's that, I think that that's an important question for everybody. When you sit down and hear the word of God, no matter where we're preaching from, what we're teaching about, what did you get out of the message? Because you should be getting something out of the message. And I, I remember I heard a preacher say one time, you may hear a thousand things and only one of them may be for you, but you better get it. See, because we fall asleep during 999 of them and miss the one that God wanted for us. So the first question is, what did you get out of the message? The second question is, what one thing were you convicted about, encouraged by, or challenged with? What one thing were you convicted about, encouraged by, or challenged with? And you can answer this as all three parts, or you can just answer one of them. It really doesn't matter. But what happened as far as what did you get out of the message? First question. Second question, what one thing were you convicted about, encouraged by, or challenged with? The third question, what other implications could you see the resurrection having? And we'll get into that one. That, 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 that's a little weird question, but you'll see when we get to that point in the message what that's talking about. What other implications could you see the resurrection having? So the first question, what did you get out of the message? The second question, what one thing were you convicted about, encouraged by, or challenged with? And the third question, what other implications could you see the resurrection having? And the fourth question... How can you live more hopeful in the resurrection? The fourth question, how can you live more hopeful in the resurrection? So those are the questions that you'll be answering in Connect. And here's another plug for Connect. If you are not in a Connect group, if you are not part of a small group, I encourage you today, before you leave, to see Pastor Chad. Pastor Chad, raise your hand. Everybody look. Or he's standing right there. Look, you can look right there. You see him right there. He is our coordinator for connect groups. He's the one who makes sure that you know which connect group would be the best one for you. And so he'll help you get plugged in. And so it is very, very important to us that you don't just come on Sundays and hear the preaching, but that you get connected with the body of Christ, that you connect with other brothers and sisters outside of the Sunday service, that you develop relationship and that you grow in a gospel-centered community because that is something that is biblical for us. As we all know, we were not just redeemed to Jesus, but we were also redeemed to one another. Amen? And so connect is a vital part to the working out our salvation as far as growing and being disciples. And so this morning, 
I'm going to speak to you a message entitled, The Offense of the Gospel. It is entitled, The Offense of the Gospel. And I was tempted as I was going through this particular portion of Scripture because you'll see that as we read here, it would seem to us that this is just kind of like a real historical pause of what is going on there to bring us to chapter 26. And so in my flesh, I was in the flesh, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to bypass chapter 25. We'll cut one of them short. And as I sat down and meditated on the Scripture, the Holy Spirit began to show me some things here that are important for us to grasp. And the reason why this is important is because I remind you every week, right? I say this every week, at least I try to, that we should not, as we go through the book of Acts, get lost in the historical realities there. Amen? Don't I say that? Yes? Amen? I, try, I, say, I say that as a precursor because sometimes we'll sit down and we think, well, Acts is just a historical book, and so there's no real value to it for me. But we have to be able to look at that. And so what I did was I didn't listen to my own advice when I was studying the scriptures. Amen? So I got lost in the historical value of this particular chapter, and so thank God for his spirit that came and showed me a couple of things that I want to share with you this morning. Now, first of all, we'll notice, if you remember in chapter 24, Paul under Felix, he was there for a while, and it says that he was there for two years. For two years, he was incarcerated without a charge really being brought against him, without a case being brought that held weight against him, and they just kept him incarcerated. And so after these two years, this new person comes on the scene by the name of Festus. He's a new political leader, and what he does is he goes to Jerusalem. And when he goes to Jerusalem, it's amazing because two years later, you would think that these people had forgotten about Paul. Paul hasn't been, been there preaching or anything like that. He's been incarcerated where he's at in Caesarea, and the fact of the matter is these people still wanted to kill Paul. And when we look at this story, we can be really mad and we can get really frustrated with these people because how they're so horrible, why are they so much against the gospel? But here's the one thing that I want us to realize is that as Christians, it is important that we keep in mind that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness that manifests its agenda through man. See, when we look at this story, we can sit there and we can really, really get upset with the Jews, but not, not realize that the devil is behind all of this. And, I, and listen, I don't say that lightly because the devil don't make you do it. Hello? Mm-hmm. You do what you want to do. And, uh, unless you are demon-possessed, and we can cast that out of you. Hello? The devil didn't make you do it. You can blame the devil. You can blame him or her. You know, I, I, I love the analogy when we were going through love and respect. And, and you know, oftentimes we say, I just can't control myself, right? And the picture is of a husband and a wife that they're going at it, going at it, going at it, and just all, you know, rah-rah at each other. All of a sudden, the phone rings. They pick up the phone. Hello? <laughs> Hold on a second. I thought you just said you couldn't control yourself. No, you can control yourself when it's convenient to you. Hello? And it's the same thing with us and our sinful desires and our sinful nature. You know, we can say no to sin by the power of the Holy Spirit, or we can try to blame everyone else. And what happens to us is we lose focus on what we should be focused on, which is the spiritual battle that is aimed at men. And what happens is the enemy wants to do everything that he can to hinder the gospel. That is what the battle is about. It's not, listen, the spiritual battle is not to make you have a bad day. It's not to make me have a bad day, not to make me have a bad week. It's not to have me in a bad situation. That is not the goal of the battle that is against our lives, that is against the church. The goal of the battle is to hinder the gospel from being preached. It is to hinder the gospel from being believed through our lives. And so it's important for us that we don't lose sight and we start getting upset with people and start looking at that one and this one and third. We need to look at what? At the spiritual battle that is taking place and understand that that, that God has entrusted us with this message. Now, as believers, 
we carry the most offensive message ever given to man. You understand that? We carry the most offensive message ever given to man. Let me, let me explain what I mean by this. It is an exclusive, listen to what I said. It is an exclusive call to those who will hear the gospel, respond in faith to Jesus, and turn from their sin, from this world, and from the God of this age. It's an exclusive message. Listen, it is preached to everyone. But not everyone is going to experience the benefits of this message. Some people are going to be judged because of the message they heard, because they rejected Jesus, they rejected the gospel, and they reject the realities of what God calls them to, which is repentance toward God and faith in his son Jesus. And so the reality is that we have been given this offensive message. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, it says this. It says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let me read that again. Romans 1.18 says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Those who, who, are the, who are the people that are perishing? They are the ones who are rejecting the message of the gospel. They are the ones who are saying, I don't need Jesus. They are the ones that are saying, my righteousness is okay. They are the ones that are saying, I'm not killing anyone. I'm not hurting anyone. I'm just doing my thing. Why is it that God, listen, Jesus died on the cross for every sin, not just big sins. Hello. In God's eyes, all sin is equal, right? And so what the scripture teaches me is that we need to understand the people who are perishing are those. And you know what the sad reality is? You may be sitting in this place and you may be someone who is perishing. You may be someone who goes to church and, and, and when, when, when you come, you don't respond to the message. You think you're okay because you go to church. Hold on a second. Church doesn't save you. Going to church like I punched a time clock, I did my thing. No, no, no. That's not enough. It is about a relationship with Jesus that bears the fruit of repentance. Those who are perishing, to them it is foolishness. That's what that word folly is. It is foolishness to them. You come and tell them they need Jesus, man, that's foolishness to them. Why do I need Jesus for? You go to someone who's got money, their marriage is okay, house is good, health is all right. What do I need Jesus for? That's foolishness. Because it's not about this earth, because one day you're going to stand before the Almighty God, and what are you going to say? Well, you know, everything was all good. I didn't think I needed you. Okay, I guess you assumed wrong. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, church, there's something we started a, a, a few months back. We started having these times of prayer in the morning here on Sunday mornings at 6 a.m. from about 6 to 8 o'clock. And there's some of us that get together and we just come to cry out to God. And why is it? It is because we want to see the fullness of the power of God, not just manifested in Faith Dome, not just manifested in Oviedo, but we want to see the power of God manifested in our days throughout all of the nations of the world. And the reality is that when I look at the gospel, I realize that this is the power of God to save. It is the message that God has given us to bring salvation. And so what should happen to us is that there should be a longing that is within our soul, within our heart, to see the power of God manifested in our days. Not to make your hair stand up. Not to make you feel all warm and fuzzy. Not to make you feel good about yourself. But the power of God that brings people to the saving knowledge of who Jesus is. 
See, because all my hairs, and I got less now, but anyway, you know, all my hairs can stand up, and I can feel all warm inside when I feel the Holy Spirit. But my question is, does my experience with God go beyond that? Does your experience with God go beyond the good feelings that you get to you sharing the message that saves, the message that transforms? Because if it doesn't, you need to repent of your sin. Preaching the resurrection of Jesus incites the power of God to be manifested. Preaching the resurrection of Jesus. See, when we talk about the resurrection, and we're going, that's, that, that, that's, that, that's part of the offense that occurs. But when we preach the resurrection, what that says is it says, God, you raised your son, now continue to do mighty miracles. When we preach the resurrection, you did something that was totally impossible, so continue to do things that are totally impossible. Like save me, that was totally impossible. Apart from God intervening, apart from God doing something, that was an impossible case. And many of you that are sitting here, you were pretty impossible too. Hello. I'm just saying. I'm not the only impossible one here. Hello. First thing I want you to say with me is this. The first point is living out the gospel means to live the least offensive as possible. Now, I have two points here, and they're going to sound like they contradict, but they don't. But the first one is this. Living out the gospel means to live the least offensive as possible. Now, I want you to notice what Paul says. Look at verse 8, and you'll see what I'm talking about here. They were already accusing him all the way, verses 1 through 7, and they couldn't, bring, they couldn't prove any of the things they were saying. But listen to Paul's response. He says, while he answered for himself, self, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. Now notice his defense. He was saying, listen, I haven't gone out of my way trying to offend the law of, of, of the Jews. I haven't, I haven't tried to dishonor what the word of God teaches. He said, I haven't gone and tried to be offensive in the temple and desecrate the temple and make people, I, I haven't tried to do anything like that. He's like, I'm not out there trying to be a rebel and go against the laws of the land. I'm not doing that. He said, I'm doing everything I can to be the least offensive as possible. In other words, we should be living to do what? To bring glory and honor to Jesus. Let me say this to you. Too many believers live by the rule, I don't care what people think about me. I'm glad I haven't heard that statement in a while, but I know some of y'all, you just said it to someone the other day. Hello. You just said it this week. I don't care what they think about me. Salvation's individual. It's about me and Jesus. Time out. You should care what they think about you because you're supposed to be an image bearer. Hello. Oh, y'all. We're supposed to be image bearers. We can't walk around and be like, oh, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. You know, it's, hold, on, hold on a second. Are you, do you think that you're acting in love? Do you think Jesus cared what people thought about him? Hello? Obviously, Paul cared about what people thought about him. People, we, we, need, to, we need to be the kind of people that care and say, wait a second. We, 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 what we can't do is we have to be like, hold on and hold on. I want to make sure that I'm living the least offensive as possible. Because there's going to come a point, and this will be my second point, that we are going to have to offend some people. But it shouldn't be because we're lawbreakers. Hello? You know, you should, like, like that one day, I, 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 told, well, I told this story a long time ago. It's been a long time since this happened. But one day I was driving down the road, and as I was driving down the road, I accidentally, and this was totally accidental, I was reaching down to grab something, and my car swerved over into a lane. And so when my car swerved over into a lane, I cut someone off. It was totally accidental. My bad. When the guy came pulled up next to me, I was, I was like, yo, my bad. And he gave me, he didn't say my bad. He did another finger. Anyway, so he was like, yo, what's up? I'm like, whoa, whoa, what's up with this guy? 
The thing was, I was like, well, it was expected, right? Well, he, he, he does that, flips me off, and then he gets in front of me. And you know what was on the back of his car? A little fish. So I started chasing homeboy. I was like, oh, no, you didn't, bro. I'm like, I accidentally cut you off. I wasn't, I wasn't like, you know, I didn't even have a cell phone back then, so I, I wasn't texting. I wasn't talking. I dropped something. My, my bad. I chased this dude for like two miles. He thought I was going to get out and fight him or something. He thought I had a gun. Finally, he stopped because he would not stop. Finally, he had to stop. It was a red light. I pulled up next to him. I rolled down my window. I'm like, hey, man. I'm like, do you think that finger goes with that fish? He was like, I said, okay, man, just, you know, have a good day. He said nothing else. The point of the matter is, it's important. Look, don't put a fish on your car if you're a crazy driver. Don't put a Jesus bumper sticker on there if you don't know how to drive. Hello. I'm just saying, because you got people with Jesus bumper stickers giving Jesus a bad name. I'm just, I'm, I'm just... We need to have the right mindset. We can't be, see, here, here are the two extremes. One extreme is opinion idolatry. That's the one extreme where you're like so concerned that everybody likes you. Can I tell you something? Everyone is not going to like you. Amen. Hallelujah. God has put some impossible people in your life, impossible to love, so that way you could really grow in the love of Jesus. Amen. And I always like to remind you, and you are an impossible person in someone's life. Amen. Glory to God. So while there's, because those people are hard to love. To you, I mean, to you they're hard to love. But you are hard for some people to love. I know you don't think so. I know you're like, me? How could I be hard to love? I'm so easygoing. I'm so this. I'm so. And some people just can't stand you. You just rub them the wrong way with all your niceness. Hello. I'm just saying, glory to God. So. The point is, we come, one extreme is opinion idolatry, where you really, really care. You cannot handle. Someone is upset with you, you can't sleep. Listen, that is idolatry. And notice what I said, opinion idolatry. It is when you idolize the opinion of others. It is when you are so concerned with what people think about you that you are willing to compromise in areas so that way people like you. See, that's the problem. Then the other extreme is this, and it's called self-worship. That's the, that, that's the first person I was talking to. Women just don't care what anybody thinks about them. You don't need anybody's approval. We're supposed to be image bearers. You have to think about what people think about you. We are not to be people pleasers according to the word of God. The Bible says we shouldn't be people pleasers according to the scriptures, but, but we must remember that we are representatives of Jesus. So our lives should bear the image of God clearly with as little sin as possible. Hear what I'm going to say. Grace is not our ticket to do whatever we want and get away with it. Hello. That is not what grace is. Because, you know, a lot of people come with this watered-down grace. Well, you know, God forgave my sins past, present, and future. And no matter what I do, I'm going to be okay. Listen, I don't care what your position is. You need to read your Bible because your Bible does talk about people falling away from the faith. Hello. You can't backslide if you were never somewhere. I'm just saying. I'm, 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 just, I'm, I'm serious. Okay? You can't. I mean, how, how do you backslide if you never got there? If you were never someplace. And so the point is that people walk around. See, but in, in, let, let me give you some more scripture. Because Jesus says, and I love this scripture, he says, many will come unto me on that day. Right? That, that, that's what he says. Man, he didn't say a few. Listen to what he says. Don't, don't be like, oh, he said the scripture all the time. No, no, no. Listen to the scripture. It says many. So let's just do it like this. If we represent all of the people in the world right now, he says many 
Do you know what that means? Most of us in this room, not the minority, the majority, many will come unto me in that day and will say, didn't we prophesy in your name? In other words, wasn't I a preacher of your word, right? Didn't I, didn't I tell people about you? Didn't I do great works in your name? You know what he's going to say to them? Apart from me, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. Because you thought grace was just a ticket. You could just do whatever you wanted, past, present, and future. But your future you got before him and you found out it wasn't like that. Many people are going to think they're cool with God and they're not. And it's important that we look at that and that we understand that grace is not a ticket to sin. But what grace is, it is the divine influence upon our hearts displayed in our lives. It is the manifestation of the resurrection power of Jesus. That's what grace is. It is the, it is the manifestation of the power of God in our lives as being changed and being transformed. If you continue reading with me in verse 9, it says, But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Now, the whole thing that we have to understand here is that a couple of chapters ago, Paul's nephew, if you remember, he came and told Paul that the Jews had plotted to kill him. Y'all remember that, right? And so what happens is, this, if you just read this, you'd be like, well, why wouldn't Paul want to go back there? And why would Paul even say what he's going to say? He says here in verse 11, he said, for if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. Why does he get so, you know, like, like, like so depressed or whatever there? Like, you know, if I got to die, I got to die. What he's saying is he's like, I know what the plan of the Jews are. I know if I go back to Jerusalem, they're going to ambush me, they're going to kill me, and that's going to be the end of my life. But he says this, he says, for if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But, there, but if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to, to, to them. I appeal to Caesar. So what Paul says, he, he, when, when I was reading this, it's like, look, you know what? Our death should be as important as our lives. Our death should be as important as our lives. And see, we can't control where we're going to die. We can't control when we're going to die. What we can control is how we live our lives so that when we die, the glory of God is manifested there. Because all of us are going to pass away. And so here's the, here's the fact. The fact is when I think about those days, I've, I've been to, I, one of the things that I hate to do more than anything else are funerals. I do not like to do funerals. I don't enjoy doing them. I don't like speaking, you know, because it's really hard to, to comfort people. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really tough scenario for me. I just, you know, I don't know what to say. A lot of times I get around people and I just, I'm quiet. I'm like, okay, you know, I'm here. I'll pray and those type things. I mean, I know you think your pastor, he should have something great to say. I'm sorry I don't. I'm just saying. But I'm there for you, I pray with you, I sit with you, I listen to you. I mean, that's just, that, that, but, so I don't necessarily like doing funerals. But I can tell you this, I've been to some funerals that were pretty amazing. I've been to some funerals, I've been to two funerals, as a matter of fact, of two older women that one of them passed away. Um, she was my, she's my wife's aunt, and she passed away. And it was so awesome because when they, you know, they came to, 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 to the funeral, and they were singing songs of worship. And after the songs of worship, people got up and gave testimonies. And this woman's death was impacting lives there. Because he, when she died, when they were remembering her life, it was amazing. And then I think it's Pastor, that was your grandmother that passed away, right? And, and Pastor Chad's grandmother, that was another awesome funeral that I, that I went to where there was people bringing glory to Jesus because of, I didn't even know all the stuff about Pastor Chad's grandmother. And that that's the way that our life should be, that we have impacted so many people's lives on our way to our grave because every one of us, whether you like it or not, you are on your way to a grave. 
I'm just saying, I know that sounds real morbid and real depressing, but the fact is, we are all, every moment, every breath you take, you are one day, one second, one moment closer to death. And so the thing is this, when I go and when I pass away, will my life bring glory and honor to Jesus? Or are people going to be like, man, I don't even know who that guy represented. See, that becomes important for us. And Paul was saying, look, man, I'm not going to let my death be in vain. I'm not going to go back to Jerusalem because I have an appointment with God in Rome. Hello. And so if I have to die, I'm willing to die. He's like, I'm not opposed to dying. But the reality is Paul lived his life in a way he didn't want to offend where it was, was, was unnecessary. He didn't want to offend where he didn't have to offend. And he wanted to make sure that his life and his death were equally important. The second thing, which, which will sound a little bit of contradictory, repeat this after me, say, living out the gospel means we cannot compromise when offense is necessary. So the first point is that living out the gospel, we should live as least offensive as possible. But also, living out the gospel, that's a two-sided coin here. When we live out the gospel, it means that we cannot compromise when offense is necessary. In other words, if you and I are really going to live out the gospel, there are going to be some tough conversations that we're going to have to have with people in the name of the gospel, and it's going to be painful for both of us. It's going to hurt you to say it. It's going to hurt them to hear it. Hello. But we have a choice. Am I going to glorify Jesus or am I going to give it to my flesh? Look at verses 18 and 19 with me, please. It says, when the accusers stood up, they brought no such accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. So we didn't read all the verses there, but what happens is Festus is being, uh, he, he, he's, he's, he has, King Agrippa is there, and he doesn't know what, what to do, because remember, Paul, he goes on ahead, he says, listen, I want to go before this other king. And so Festus, he's new at this. He's not, he hasn't been doing this a long time. And so he has to, he can't just send someone before the king to be judged. He has to send them there with some kind of papers that say these are the accusations against him. This, this is what he's been accused of. This is what you're judging him about. And so because he didn't know how to do it, when King Agrippa comes, onto the, you know, comes to visit him, he's like, listen, man, can you help me out? Can you guys listen to him? Can you? And we're going to talk about that next week. We'll see when he stands before King Agrippa and, and next week's message. But what he does here is he says, look, he says, I don't know what to say. But what he does say is this, when we look at this verse 18, he says they didn't bring any accusation that was worthy of death against him. He said in verse 19, he says, but, but had some questions about him, about their own religion, and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. While we should live offending the least as possible, there is one place that we will inevitably offend others, and that is at the presentation of the gospel, especially when we deal with the resurrection. So you can be cordial to people, and you shouldn't be a lawbreaker, and you shouldn't offend people unnecessarily. But when it comes to the gospel, you are going to step on people's toes. When it comes to the gospel, you are going to offend people's intellect. Because we have learned, listen, since we were children, okay, many of us learn that you earn what you get. Amen? That is what we learn. Since we're children, we learn that if we do good, you know, then we get good stuff, right? If we do bad, I mean, you know, that's just, we reap what we sow. We've learned this since we were little kids. And then what happens is, I try to live, now, now think about this, you try to live your life, you know, as, as, as good as you can, as good as you can be, you know, you're one of those do-gooders, hello. 
You know, you give, you give to charity, you know, you, you volunteer in a soup kitchen, you do all this good stuff. You, you, you can't see people hurting. And all of these things are good, but you don't have faith in Jesus. And then I come to you, and I'm sitting down with you, and I'm asking you, well, you know, where's your faith in Jesus? And you say, well, you know, I really don't think I need Jesus because I'm good enough. Do you think that that's offensive when I go ahead and I tell you, man, you know, you're not good enough to get to heaven? That offends people. That bothers them. Listen, that's one of the heart points of atheism is that I don't need God in order to be moral. Are you hearing me? That's one of the heartbeats of secular humanism. I don't need God to be moral. And so what happens is we have to come back and say, wait a second. This message of the gospel that Paul was preaching, he was pretty clear as far as the resurrection. And he made sure that in his gospel presentation that he preached the resurrection. To preach the resurrection, you must preach the death of Jesus. Amen? You can't talk about Jesus living and him rising from the dead if you don't talk about his death. So when you're going to talk about the resurrection, you have to talk about what? A God being holy, God being just. You've got to talk about God being righteous. You've got to talk about why Jesus died. Because when you tell people Jesus died for you, why did Jesus die for them? What was the point? If we're going to be clear with the message of the gospel, we need to be clear. Why did Jesus have to die? He had to die because all of your goodness is not good enough. Because there's a lot of people that really think they're good enough, and that is called self-righteousness. And what you need to let them know is Jesus died for your self-righteousness. Jesus died for your self-righteousness. I know that you've never been on drugs. I know that you've never, you know, done wrong. I know you've never done any of these things, but you need to understand that Jesus died for you anyway because you need him whether you want to. See, there's some people, you know, like me, like, man, I knew I was a heathen. Hello. There was no question about it. I knew what I was doing was wrong. I knew that I was dishonoring God. I knew that my life was not right before him. I was easy to convince on that point. I just loved my sin more than I wanted to follow God. I love my sin more than I feared hell until one day God brought the reality of what hell was like, and it was like, all right, it's time to make a change. Hello. Some people make jokes. Some people joke about hell. They think it's funny. Hell is not funny. Jesus died to deliver people from hell. But he did not only die to deliver people from hell, but after he died, he resurrected. He showed that not the, the thing that no man, no, listen, no pill, no surgery, no nothing is going to keep you from dying. When you die, you die. That is going to happen. And so the reality is when you talk about the resurrection, it is totally against any rational thinking. Resurrection, hello. See, and, and, and it's funny because, you know, we see resurrections. We see them happen. Every once in a while, God manifests himself. The other day I was talking to someone, had lunch with them. They told me that his wife, while she was, while she was giving birth, that she flatlined, and she was dead for 10 minutes. Now, she's on a table, no heartbeat. That is a dead person. Hello. 10 minutes. 10 minutes later, boom, she comes back to life. What's that called? That's resurrection. Hello. That's God's grace. I don't know if she was a believer or not at the time. What I'm telling you is God lets us see that. But here's the thing. There was only one person because you look at Lazarus, that was a resurrection. Hello. You see one of the little girls in the, in, in the gospel, that was a resurrection, right? A, a, a little boy in the gospel, those are resurrection examples. But here's the thing. All of those people, you can find their grave today. Jesus, you find his grave, but it's empty. Listen, and they've been trying to prove that it is not. I want you to understand it is. Hello. And the first people, listen, we would not have our Bible today if the resurrection was not a reality. Are you hearing me? 
Because trust me, those Jewish folks would have produced the body of Jesus and said, y'all Christians, shut up. Here is the one that we stabbed in the side. But you know why they couldn't produce it? Because he rose from the grave. And he ascended into glory. And so while the, res- while the resurrection is counterintuitive, it is truth. And it offends people when you start talking about it. But specifically, and this is where we talk about what are the implications of the gospel. Why was the resurrection? Because notice this. When Festus comes to Agrippa, he says to him, listen, man. He said, these guys, they didn't have anything to accuse him of, of, of anything crazy. But, but what they talked to him about was some questions about their religion, about this guy named Jesus that was dead and that Paul said is alive. So the big offense to them that stood out to Festus was what? The preaching of the resurrection. Why does the resurrection offend them so much? Here's the implications that I'll give you. I'll give you three, and you can figure out if there's more. This is not an exhaustive list by any means. But specifically to the Jewish people who had rejected Jesus, what are the implications for them? It is, number one, they had all been waiting. Understand this. All of the Jews in in that time that believed the scriptures, they were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for the fulfillment of scriptures. They were waiting for him. That's the reason why they would ask Jesus in the book of John. Read it. They're like, he's, they tell him, tell us plainly. If you're the Christ, let us know. And Jesus is like, I've already told you, but you don't believe. They didn't want to believe because he wasn't the Messiah they thought. They thought that he was going to come maybe on, you know, some kind of kingly attire with, you know, bringing this kingdom to bring destruction to the Roman Empire or whatever it was. But here is the reality. The reality is that when you look at Jesus coming on the scene, his resurrection means that these Jewish people had missed the Messiah. You know what that means? That means that everything Jesus did, everything Jesus taught, everything that Jesus exemplified, hear me now, in his death, It is all nullified. In his death, anything Jesus taught doesn't matter. Anything Jesus did doesn't matter. Anything Jesus exemplified doesn't matter. But the moment he rises from the dead, it solidifies everything he was. You see, while he is sitting there and while he is preaching and he's, and he's calling them a, bu- a brood of vipers. Well, that was John the Baptist calling them a brood of vipers. But when he's telling them that they are hypocrites and he's, you know, woe is this and woe is that. He's talking about how they're white, you know, whitewashed walls. And he, he gives them all of these things. He's rebuking them and telling them that they hold to their tradition more than to the word of God. These people are being rebuked vehemently by Jesus because he's trying to bring repentance to them. And they reject him and they put a plan together and they kill him. And they're like, you know what? We're going to shut him up. And so like, all right, he's shut up, he's done. They even sent her like, look, you know, make sure that there's some, there's some guards there to guard that place because, you know, his disciples, they're going to come back and try to steal his body. They made sure that there was no way that a human being would be able to get the body of Jesus out of the tomb. And that was exactly how God wanted it so that there would be no question as to the resurrection. But what happens is, for them, that's why they wanted to kill Paul. That's why they wanted to kill all the Christians. Because they're like, man, these people rebuked us. I mean, Jesus rebuked us, and these people are saying he's alive. So that means that we missed it. And so rather than repent of your sin, rather than turn from your sin and humble yourself before Jesus, you rather try to silence another one. So that's the implication for them. What's the implication for us? The resurrection validates the claims and the commands of Scripture. You see, when you look at Christianity, the resurrection sets it apart from every other religion. Are you here? 
The resurrection sets Christianity apart from every other because all the other religion, whoever their founders are, guess where they are? Dead. <laughs> they're in the grave. They may have promised the resurrection and they're still waiting on those. Hello. The best they can come up with in some of these beliefs is that they're going to reincarnate in someone anyway. Jesus dies, resurrects, ascends into heaven, and he's coming back. That's what he says. And so we already know about his life. We already know about his death. We already know about his burial. We already know about his resurrection and his ascension. That's why we're here today, right? Because of these things. And so we can trust that this last one is his return is going to happen. Amen? It sets Christianity apart. And so what that means is it, when, when, when we look at what the scriptures command, this is what it means. If Jesus is alive, then everything that the word of God says holds weight in my life. So it means that I can't live how I want to live. It means I can't govern my life the way I want to govern my life, but I need to embrace the word of God as the final authority in my life. That's what the resurrection means for us. Because we serve a living God. The last implication that I'll give you for the resurrection is the resurrection should give us real hope against impossibilities. Amen? It should give us real hope against the impossibilities. And along with that real hope, it should give us a real, a real fear as well. See, because there should be a real hope in me. Because when I look at the resurrection and I recognize Jesus rose from the dead, the absolutely impossible became possible. Now I know that the same God that rose Jesus from the dead is going to raise me up at one day as well. But I also know that there is power not just for the future to raise me up, but there is power for me to live by now here while I'm living in the earth. And so what happens is when I really believe in the resurrection, there is a real hope. Listen, my life may never be perfect, and I may not have every prayer answered with a yes. They all will be answered. Hello. Because for some reason we think, and I, and I have to keep reminding you this, for some reason we think that the only prayers that are answered are the ones when God says yes. Can God say no? Absolutely he can say no. You don't want to hear him say no. I don't want to hear him say no. Listen, when I cry out to God straight up, when we pray and we cry out to God in these mornings, there is no guarantee. I hear what I'm going to say right now. There is no guarantee that I have that God is going to open up the windows of heaven and that he is going to bring revival before his wrath is poured on this earth. I don't have any guarantee on that. But you know why I cry out to him? Because I have hope in his resurrection power. Because I have hope. And when, when I look at the Bible, I'm like, well, God, this is what you did there. When I look at the scriptures, I know what God is capable of. I know the character of God. I know that God is loving. I know that God is merciful. I know that God is gracious. And I know that if I get teary-eyed when I look at the news that is on the television, I can only imagine God's heart when he's seeing the news being made. And so what I know is that he is a loving father. He has more mercy and more grace than I will ever have. And so when I cry out to him, I believe with all of my heart that he can revive, that he can restore, that he can glorify, and he can do great and mighty things. But I have no guarantee on that. And if he says no, I'll take it, but I will die crying out to him. I will die believing that, that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I can ask or think according to the power that works in me. See, that's what the resurrection produces. When you serve a dead God, you don't have hope. When you serve a dead God, you don't have hope for impossible situations. You have issues in your home, there's no hope. That's it. The doctor said it's done. It's done. You have no hope. There have situations with your finances. There's no hope because that's just, hold on a second. 
when I serve the living God, when I really believe in this resurrection power that is manifested in Jesus, I really have hope, not just for the future, but for my life here and now. But if I believe in that resurrection, then there should also be a real fear as well. Because just as there's that resurrection glory, there is an eternity being separated from God that people will experience. And hear me when I say this. For those of you that believe in the resurrection and have put your faith in Jesus, you should be praying for those in here that have not done that. Because there are some people in this place, they haven't put their faith in Jesus. And the, and, and the truth is that the same way that Jesus rose from the dead, the same way Jesus is seated in glory, the same way he says all judgment has been entrusted to him, there is going to be a day that all men will stand before the judgment seat of Almighty God. And there's two things that should happen. One, if you don't know him, you should repent of your sin and put your faith in him. Number two, if you do know him, you should be moved with a holy, just a a consuming fire inside of you to share the gospel with as many people as you can because that may be the only opportunity that they have to be saved from hellfire. That's what should happen. There should be something that goes on inside of us. And for many of us as Christians, we call ourselves Christians, but we have no passion, no care, no concern for those who don't know Jesus. And that is a problem. Because do you really believe in the resurrection? Do you really believe in the truth of Scripture? If there's no care and no concern for those who don't know God, I would say no. My last point here is that notice who's speaking in verse, in, in, in verse 18 and 19 here, it's Festus. It's not Paul. And Festus, he didn't know how to judge this case. He didn't know how to judge the case. But based on all of the evidence, and, and, and if you read this chapter by yourself, you will see based on, on what's said there, there's not much said, so you really can't dig into like what, what did the Jews say, what did you know, Paul say, just little bits and pieces that we get. But from all of the evidence that Festus heard and everything that he received, what he, and mind you, it was intermingled with lies because we know that they were lying. They were saying things about Paul that could not be proven. Y'all remember that earlier in the scripture that said that. So while they were accusing Paul, they weren't accusing him truthfully. They were accusing him dishonestly. But what this, what, what this Festus comes out with is he's like, you know what? I don't know how to judge this and how to send this to Caesar, but here's what I do know. What I do know is that the questions that they had They were about this person who was dead, who is now alive. And so here's the question for you and I to think about. If we were on trial for our faith, would the message of the gospel be that clear? If we were on trial for our faith, would the message of the gospel come that clear to people who are obviously not saved? Hello? People who are not walking with Jesus? People who who, who don't know the Torah, don't know the promises of God? Would our lives reflect that? And my last question as I'm closing is this, is does your life reflect the hope of the resurrection? Does your life reflect the hope of the resurrection? Stand to your feet and bow your heads, please.